0: Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, Associate Pastor Ron King continues a series called What is Going On, where we read the entire Bible in a year. The six prophets of Judah before the exile, Joel, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, had a terrible message of punishment for sins committed death by sword, pestilence and famine, exile for Judah, vengeance on the nations around Israel, and vengeance on the nations who would oppress God's people. But these prophets also had a message of future hope and blessing. In this message, Ron shares four truths about God that we can learn from these prophets. After the message and throughout the week, read the book of Joel, Ebediah, Micah, Naham, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Also, check out nwhills.com/hub, that's h u b, for additional resources like book overviews, reading plans, and application questions. Now, here's today's message. The message of six minor
1: prophets and we're going to get into them. So, six books and one sermon and there's some threads that go through all the books that connect the whole message hopefully. You'll be encouraged as we get into God's word together. So I really, um, I wasn't aware. I wasn't aware of a lot of things, actually, in middle school. But I wasn't aware that following Jesus would be so challenging and that I would lose friendships over it and that it would just be a struggle at times. And I was, you know, I'm sure there was part of me that was, you know, prideful about my exercise of faith But I was really seeking to follow the Lord as a middle schooler and, you know, going through all the emotional ups and downs that you do. But um, I started realizing, hey, my friends that I grew up with, kids are not using the same language that I used. And they weren't going to the same kind of parties and they weren't treating opposite sex the same way. And I was really grappling with it. And one day um, um, we had lockers and I was at my locker, and they were alphabetical, and the guys next to me, um, he's one of the most popular guys in school, and uh, his name was Jeff, longtime friend, and he said, <clears throat> he, he turned to me and said, hey, you want to see, and he wants to share with me a, a porn magazine. I'm like, no, dude, I don't, I don't want to see it at all, and he looks at me, and he says, oh, you think you're so much better than I am. You're judging me? I'm like, I didn't know how to respond, actually, because that wasn't like in my heart at all. I wasn't trying to be a jerk. I was just trying to be someone who follows Jesus as a middle schooler, which is hard because you stand out. And I know all of you have experienced this because part of the process, for those of you who are following Jesus, it's about God transforming you to the image of Jesus and his son, um, the son of the father. And that makes you progressively should make you progressively holy. That means that you are set apart from a culture that's got all kinds of stuff going around it and swirling around it. And I I could not understand that. I was struggling with it as a young kid. And actually, sometimes I think I still struggle with it. Sometimes I find myself like a fish swimming upstream or like Somebody who um, steps in and you see everybody around you, like they've been playing mud football for a couple of weeks, and you step in, you've got this shiny little clean uniform. You feel like kind of a geek. But actually, you're just simply trying to be the person that God has called you to be, and that makes you, by nature, stand out. And that's who you were created to be. Like, you were created to be the person who's diving after, full-on, passionate about following the Lord, Because that's how God has created you to live. But around you, it's difficult. And people also often feel like you're judging them because of the way that you speak or act, behave in any given circumstance. But I want you to think about this for a moment. God is, by nature and by action, a judge. He doesn't shy away from that. And it's not like he's looking down his nose at you, seeking for a way to condemn you or make you feel like garbage. That's not who he is. He's seeking to use his judgment to bring moral clarity and to bring health to you and correction to all of us. He's not mired in the muck of ethical or moral relativism. He is a God of moral clarity, good and evil, heaven and hell, right and wrong. That's who God is. And he consistently judges and uses judgment to accomplish his purposes and his will. And that happens to be good, even though it might not feel like it in the moment. So some of us can live with that. And we know that It's okay because God is true and fair in his judgments. He is holy and righteous in his nature. And he uses judgments to discipline his children. And his judgments are not capricious or random. They're purposeful and right. And they're exercised out of a heart of love. But would it be possible that God could call his followers into that same kind of place in a culture that's in the mud? That is, for us to judge on occasion. Would that be possible? And could that ever be helpful or good in a world that's filled with moral uncertainty and ambiguity? We're now on the home stretch, which is good. We're almost all the way done with the Old Testament. woo So, um... For those of you who have been reading since September, we've been reading as a church all the way through. Some of you have picked up along the way. Some of you are just starting. That's okay. Um, But we're all the way, almost all the way through, and we're at the very end of it, which are what's called the Minor Prophets. There's 12 of them. This morning, we're going to do six of them in one fell swoop. And um, it's really, actually, very good news. But it's a bit of a, a misnomer to call them the Minor Prophets. Because a majority of these prophets spent their entire lives, like decades, in ministry, influencing their culture and speaking out for the Lord. They made huge sacrifices to help people come to a place of what the Bible terms, repentance. That word sounds a little spiritual and it's become spiritualized. It's probably a bit more significant. We're going to dive into that a little bit later than what you might anticipate the word repentance, but that's kind of the theme that weaves itself through all of the 12 minor prophets and all the major prophets as well. There's good news this week. You get to read Obadiah and you can check that off your box in five minutes, 21 verses, right? And you can say, wow, I already read a book today, right? And there's also good news in that there's some really great nuggets of truth encouragements here, teaching to help us understand the heart of God and the lengths to which he would go to call our culture and to call you personally back to his heart. And these books will get you asking weighty questions about the nature of who God is, his goodness, his purposes, about human disobedience and evil, and about God's plan his final plan, his big picture plan for the last day. We don't have a whole lot of information personally on many of these minor prophets, but we do know this. They were people of huge wisdom and courage. It took that in the middle of the culture that they lived in. Does that sound familiar? Their lives and their message, they were unpopular and people resented them. And they all heard, I think, at one time or another, are you judging me? So let me ask this question. For those of you who are moms here in the crowd, um, if you are one of those moms and your kid just happens to disobey you at one point, I know it's a stretch, right? <laughs> and they disobey you, and you've decided with your young kid, um, they've had a lot of timeouts. Timeout is not going to work in this particular situation. So you decide to paddle their little bottom to give them a little corporal punishment. I'm not going to debate that right now, but I'm just saying that's what your decision was. So you're going to paddle their little bottom, and uh, you do that, and your kid looks back at you and says, uh, this is from personal experience, one of my kids, right? And says, that didn't hurt. <laughs> You've been there. Some of you have been there, moms, right? <clears throat> and if you are going to be a mom one day, that will probably happen to you if you've got a willful kid. So um, you hear that phrase? So what do you do? You pull out the trump card. Wait till dad gets home. Right? It's my wife did. <clears throat> Wait till dad gets home. In a sense, the prophets have that kind of message for us. Wait till your father gets this. Because there will be a day. The prophets call it the day of the Lord or that day. You might think that you can get away with this or that in the moment you won't be held accountable, but God is fantastic at holding all of us accountable. And the prophets, as one of their messages, will tell us this, that he's going to hold his people accountable. These prophets, they all wrote in a season of Israel's history where there was this downward slide away from God and his heart And yet there were brief windows where the people of God would have national revival like under Hezekiah and Josiah, but they would never last. It would never last. They would always turn their hearts away from the Lord and go in opposite direction that was hurtful to them and hurtful to the culture and would manifest it in in crime and injustice and violence and immorality and the lack of compassion for the poor or justice for the oppressed. Judah was not fulfilling their God-given role to be a light to the nations for people to be drawn to the Lord. And God was going to step in in the middle of this spiritual and moral mess. And in the mess, God called these voices. Six of them we'll hear of this morning. Joel, Obadiah, Micah, Zephaniah, and two more that we'll talk about. Nahum Habakkuk. So, what were they saying? What was their message? I've reduced it to just four things this morning we're going to touch on. The last one really will be a personal one. It'll help us, it'll get us to a place to grapple and lead us to understand the heart of God for every one of us to experience ongoing repentance. Some of you might have thought of that word repentance as something that happened in your past as a young kid where you came before God and you were honest with him and you confessed your sin and you asked for forgiveness and um, that was repentance for you and it has been repentance for you. But that's not the whole story of God for us. So here are the top four of these themes that are voiced in these prophetic books. The Lord is committed to fight human evil and violence. He's committed to fight human evil and violence, and that's really good news because even though we think we're so advanced today, we can look across the world and we can see what's happening in Ukraine and Sudan and all these other nations that are in the middle of war and violence. We can see the violence in our own cities, in our own towns, our own neighborhoods. We can see injustice all over. The expressions of human evil in our countries and in our worlds and in our homes, and God is committed to fight that. Second, the Lord is passionate about justice because every person matters to him, and the church has a voice to proclaim justice that 's why actually giving the link to um, love Inc is so important for you this morning because that's how we step into injustice in our city in practical ways as a church. There are other ways, there are other avenues to do that for sure, but this is a really practical way that you can engage yourself in it. Third, the Lord uses judgment purposefully to correct and restore those he loves. He's got a plan for you, and we only see a little part of it when he corrects us, but he has a great arcing plan to restore all things read the book of Revelation. That's the end of it, all things being made new. And finally, the Lord will always respond with mercy to true repentance. So over the years, I've had, um, you've probably had these conversations with people who bring out the card of the problem of evil as an excuse for them to no longer exercise their faith in Jesus. It's a tragedy that might hit close to their home or they're struggling with something that they've seen and felt and experienced evil. And then they come to the wrong conclusions about the Lord as if he's not going to do something about that or will not hold that accountable. And the prophets were pointing out something essential for us to have faith in. The Lord has His commitment as a righteous Lord and judge that he will fight human evil and violence. And at the end, God will war against it and defeat it and banish it from the earth. That's good news. I thought I might hear one amen (laughs) there. That's really actually good news. This is kind of like a non... Okay, so here's the deal. I came from like a really multi-ethnic church, and so when i make a statement like that, people would interact. And this is a little bit of a um, different kind of environment, so there we could be interactive, so... All I'm saying, that's all I'm saying. Okay. <clears throat> Praise God that he is committed to this process. Amen. Thank you. Joel, Obadiah, Mike, and Zephaniah, they framed this fight against evil referring to the day of the Lord. That's their phrase. Or that day. One day the Lord will hold all people accountable for the rebellion in their hearts and in their actions. Wait till your father comes home. That day is often used in the Old Testament as a phrase to remind people of this. Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos and Obadiah and Zephaniah and Zechariah and Malachi, they all speak this theme out. And several times in the New Testament we get it in Acts and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and Revelation, it all speak to this. The Old Testament passages dealing with the day of the Lord often convey a sense of expectation. This judgment would happen, and it did happen in their day. God brought accountability in that day. But also, like all the prophets do, their words telescope. They also have an in-time fulfillment that's going to happen, that we can rest in with confidence as God's people, that one day all will be held accountable and God will make things right. And it should actually break our heart. Isaiah says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Ezekiel says, For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. Joel says, Let all who live in the lands tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand. And again, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near. The valley of decision, Joel 3.14 Zephaniah says, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. And that's because the Old Testament passages referring to the day of the Lord, they speak about accountability faithfully and sometimes in ways that feel like harsh. But remember, this is about God's redemptive correction in the lives of his people. Like, I love my son's. And if I never corrected them, that would be an expression that I didn't give a rip about them. The father loves you and loves the world. That's why he steps in like this. God had and still has a good plan. One of my personal favorites of the minor prophets that we're studying this morning, these, these six, is Habakkuk. It's a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And it starts This way, in chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, Habakkuk says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? That's the sin of others. And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth, perverted. How long, O Lord, is this going to happen? And you do nothing. There's a little bit of silence in the dialogue, right? He's just pouring out, honestly struggling, frustrated, what he sees, like he reads a newspaper or whatever, gets online, and he sees all this stuff, and it pierces his heart, God. And then God responds, to Habakkuk in a way that he didn't really want to hear God says look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days you would not believe told for behold I'm raising up the Chaldeans I'm going to bring Babylon that's a problem for Habakkuk why because they're worse than Judah was Like they are worse in every way. They're ruthless and evil and godless and God's gonna use them as a tool to bring correction. Is that right? And so he speaks that out and there's this ongoing wrestling and grappling that Habakkuk is doing with God. And then Habakkuk is finally able to step back and to think about what God is doing and to trust that God's got it in his hands, that God's plan is better than his own plan's. (laughs) a good place to be right and he says this at the end of that book though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls yet i'll rejoice in the lord i will take joy in the god of my salvation god the lord is my strength though everything fails and i've got nothing if god comes in in judgment in ways that i hate and i'm struggling with and rips everything apart i'm still going to trust in him because i know that his ways are right that's a a big step isn't it that's a big step for us an essential place for those who would follow the lord to understand that he is trustworthy And his plans are right, regardless of what happens in our circumstances. The prophets also teach us that the Lord is passionate about justice because every person matters to him. Nahum's book is a sequel to the book of Jonah. It happens 150 years after Jonah. And if you remember a bit about the story of Jonah, Jonah's hating it. He's running the other direction because God has called him to the city of Nineveh. And he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he hates Ninevites. And God still calls him there and so he goes and he preaches reluctantly and all the people come to faith in God and repent and he hates that. Right? And so he goes and he whines. That's the story of Jonah. This is act two. Nahum is act two because it's 150 years later and all of Assyria has fallen away from the Lord. They've turned away from God and God has another voice for them, a voice to come back or else he's going to punish them. Why? Because As evil and unjust as the Ninevites were, God still cared about them. And Obadiah pens words to the Edomites. These are relatives. They came from the line of Esau, and they had betrayed Israel, and they'd given up other people who were running away from the destruction of Jerusalem. They captured them, gave them to the Babylonians. And so there's this hatred in there. Of what they have done. But God still loved the people. And he gave them a word. He still cared for them. Even though he wouldn't tolerate their injustice. And even though those people matter to God. He was going to bring corrective judgment. These prophetic books help us understand. How important the issue of injustice is to the Lord. And that it moves his heart. Isaiah begins his book this way. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Live out your faith, the Lord says, in concrete ways. That's what repentance actually looks like. Don't just say you're sorry. (laughs) Do the right thing. Step into that. And Micah was a contemporary. For over 50 years, he and Isaiah did ministry together. And that's where Micah's word comes from. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. Seek justice, pursue it, do it actually. Practice justice, seek mercy, walk humbly with the Lord your God. That's what repentance looks like where you need to live. That's my call to you. And Zephaniah writes this. The Lord within her, that's within Judah, is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows, he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the ju- unjust knows no shame. God in our midst is just and he longs for you to be an instrument of his justice, of righteousness in a world that's got to be a mess. The people of Judah had stopped prioritizing both personal and public justice at great cost, both personal and public cost. And this moved God to act, not because he valued the law, because he loved people that he made in His image, because he loves you and the people you go to school with or work with or in your neighborhood. He wants them treated with the worth that He created them with. And any injustice against His creation grieves the Lord, and we must repent of it. We must turn. We also discover this truth in these books. The Lord uses judgment purposefully to correct and restore those that he loves. To correct and restore those he loves. One day, Habakkuk says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that a great picture? But it's not happening yet. Unless Jesus decides to appear this afternoon, which would be fantastic. We look forward to that. But in the in-between time, God's going to use judgment to purposefully accomplish his purposes as a good parent would do his child who's disobeying. The Lord is going to hold people accountable so that they might learn how to follow him. And that's the message of these prophets. And while I can't often make sense of it all, that the, what the Lord is doing in the moment, I can be sure that he's not sitting idly by. That's not who he is or that his plan will not be accomplished, because it will be. Micah writes this, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Now remember, the people around him had a lot more sin in their lives than he did, because he was following the Lord for decades. But he said, I'm the sinner, and I will bear what God wants to do with me until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. He's saying, wow, God actually is in my corner even though I'm a sinner. And that's the story of the gospel, the good news that Jesus brought us, right? That for every one of us, even though we've been the ones in the wrong, God is on our side, in our corner, correcting us, reproving us, encouraging us, bringing to a place where we would humbly acknowledge him, that he is good and repent, turn toward him with a whole heart. It's a fascinating picture, I think. The Lord disciplining through judgment. And then that he has an unstoppable plan to renew all things. That's, of course, what the prophets are saying about the day of the Lord. And it's what we find at the end of Scripture in the book of Revelation, that he has this great plan that's unstoppable But between now and then, we live like the prophets that we're examining in a world that's filled with violence and injustice and poverty and moral confusion. But like the prophets, we can have a voice humbly to consistently proclaim our God-given responsibility, proclaim the gospel, the good news for people, and before people to live humbly and to engage in justice, and the righteousness of the Lord. So this is the powerful message of the Lord, but there's one last truth that really combines all the prophets together and it's this that the Lord will always respond with mercy to true repentance, to true repentance. The question is, what does that look like? What is true repentance looks like? look like. Uh, I think it's difficult for us actually to step in and to fully appreciate all that's meant by repentance. It's not just a saying, I'm sorry, but it's what C.S. Lewis has said, um, one of J.J.'s favorite authors and one of mine, when he said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. We are rebels who must lay down our arms. And we're those who must move full speed astern. That's repentance. Full speed astern. Isn't that a great picture? I think that as we process what repentance looks like for us, we need to think a little deeper this morning. I I can look at the arc of Israel's history, because we're almost at the end of the Old Testament, And easily say to ourselves, they're such idiots, right? Why do they keep returning to the muck and mire of their disobedience and then know that they're going to be judged for it and still disobey? Why do they keep on doing that stupid thing they keep on doing, disobeying the Lord and walking away from him and then falling into idolatry and immorality? And then the Spirit of God, like, knocks on my door and he says, ah hey, Ron, what's the story of your life, (laughs) right? That's your story, Ron. It's the story, the same arc that you've known my mercy and grace, you've accepted my gifts, and then you turn away from me. So easily, you turn away from me. So one more time, I'm calling you back to what true repentance looks like. To actually come before the Lord like David did and say, search my heart know if there's any hurtful way in me, which is hard to do, right? Especially repetitively, like to keep on doing. And then not only that, but to listen to what God says back to me. I'm really good at like confessing my sin. I'm not so good at saying, okay, and, and listening to the Lord dig deeper in the crevices of the darkness of my soul. And then actually getting real and right and authentic before him and listening to say, this is what I need of you, Ron. Full speed astern looks like this. The opposite direction. In this area of your life, I need you to humble yourself and change. Experience the change my spirit wants to accomplish in your life. Here's what I want us to consider most this week. There's no spiritual growth without true repetitive repentance. If it's not active in your life, you stop growing in the Lord. That's challenging, right? But the good news is, this morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity just where you sit. If you've never done this before, I'm simply asking you to come before God honestly and to confess that you have often been a self-centered dude or dudette, <laughs> that you have been a person who have walked away from the Lord, done your own thing in your own will. The good news is there's only mercy and grace, not judgment in God for you. He listens to you as a father who loves you and created you, and says, oh, child, I'm so glad to hear those words. Now let's change. You do that the very first time he changes you and gives you eternal life. That's how you begin the process of becoming Christian, trusting what Jesus has done on the cross to pay for your sin and embracing newness of life through repentance. And if you're someone who has taken that step, this is another great day to be a humble heart before the Lord. So, I want you to just to be introspective here, to be a listener, to simply say to the Lord, search my heart, God, what is it you want this morning me to repent of, to change, and I confess that before you, I'm sorry. I'm gonna ask the band to come up, and we're gonna reflect on that, and I'm gonna lead us in prayer, and then I'm gonna ask you just to get quiet before the Lord and to listen. God, by your spirit, speak to us. I know you love to do that, in the middle of all that confusion and the relativism and the the muck of our culture and in our own bent hearts broken hearts we're asking God that you would come and speak to us and you would reshape our hearts God soften them help us not just to do the exterior stuff to render our Rend our garments, but to rend our hearts before you. Confess that we're broken and in need of you and in need of change, God. Now speak. Would you listen to the Lord? Process this. Pray honestly with Him, before Him.
0: A God of mercy who loves to hear this. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage with us. And if you're able, we'd love to see you at church next Sunday. Thanks again for listening.